Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 7, Episode 4, Defending Your Life. Let's get this show on the road. Once again, we want to start off this podcast by shouting out the people who have left us reviews on Apple Podcasts. So this week, we'd like to thank Nelsonator13 and Dcan01 for their kind words. We honestly really, really appreciate them. It really does help us because Apple Podcasts really cares about reviews and positive reviews. So thank you. Thank you. So... Really? I'll be honest, like... What episode were you <laughs> expecting? Because I have questions. I... I don't know. Um, I love playing detective. I love trying to solve the case as they are. I don't think anything would have led me down to Egyptian gods. That's honestly fair. I mean, we did have like Greek myth. Egyptians gods showing up didn't surprise me. But the like, <laughs> the clues are, it's an apple farm. It's a barn in the woods. There's some strange <laughs> symbols. I'm like, is it like a witch? And she's like, getting revenge or are we like in another scarecrow scenario here with the apple orchard no no it's osiris judging people and giving them um what i would consider like not ironic deaths but like almost ironic deaths honestly when i first watched it i was like it's the trickster it's just desserts i mean this entire episode is kind of ridiculous we will talk about that in critical time i have some thoughts about it it's ridiculous but kind of in the best way <laughs> Well, that is exactly where we're going, actually, in critical time. <laughs> Let's recap in three, two, one, go. The boys are trying to do what they consider a normal case, and everything seems fairly normal. They think they've solved it because they burn the bones of somebody, which, as we know, is always the way they solve every case, because that's never not been the solution. Surprise, it wasn't the solution. People are still mysteriously dying by ways that kind of don't make sense. And they finally find a tie to a farm and they find a dude on the farm who just showed up there. And the people he once killed are now after him in ghost form. And they continue to dig into this. And then Dean gets captured because it turns out it's Osiris, an Egyptian God who's judging people, but not even really. He's making them judge themselves. And if they think they are guilty, then they're guilty. And then Sam's all like, I can be a lawyer, which is kind of adorable <laughs> and amazing. Cause he gets, well, we always kind of thought what he wanted to do and go into law. And he does a really good job of defending. And like Ron, uh, Osiris is like surprisingly really funny as a judge and is a good character. But ultimately, Dean is guilty, but they still save the day because Jewish mysticism apparently was luckily conveniently placed. Time! This episode was written by Adam Glass, directed by Robert Singer, and it originally aired on October 14th, 2011. I find that this episode actually looks back rather than gives us clues about the future. So the long game is actually going to be super short this week. This is not the last time that Dean is going to say that he never was a kid. Huh. I do want to mention that we've officially entered the Sideburn Sam era. They're huge. I like, I like the way he's looking, but I guess I got to go back and focus a little more on those sideburns. I am the owner of a very unpopular opinion that I find that he looks really good with the sideburns. But anyway, I will keep that to myself, I guess. <laughs> I'll need some side-by-side -side photos, but I think I'm siding with you on this one. 
That's great. Thank you, Drew. <laughs> we look back at the relationship between Dean and Joe. We also look back at the relationship between Dean and Sam, complete with some um, flashbacks from episodes that we've seen before, right? So uh, a little bit of nostalgia there. For a second, I was worried it was going to turn into a full-blown clip show episode. This is like the closest we ever get to one, frankly. I'm okay with that. This, this is as good as a clip show can get. I'm happy with it. We do also get a lot of clues in this episode that Dean is unwell and drinking a lot. That's like two in a row now we've got the Dean drinking thing put on display. We know, we know why. We've talked about it the entire episode last week, so. Dean's kind of hyping himself up to potentially sleep with a woman for the first time in a while. How long had it been since Dean had hooked up with somebody that we know of, like, that's been pictured on the show? So I think we have to then go back to Lisa. Yes. I think this is his first on-screen hookup since Lisa. Presumably a year with Lisa, there was no other hookups except for potentially with her. So if we like forget, so that's a year of no hookups, just like a monogamous relationship. Prior to Lisa, when was the last like on-screen romance for Dean? There's the lost time in the You're Not Dying a Virgin cast, but besides that... Well, okay, putting aside the cast hookups that I'm sure have happened, although they're not pictured on the show, there must be a list somewhere on the internet. A fan of this show keeping a list of every time Dean is potentially hooked up with a woman on the show? I'm shocked that that would exist, he said with all the sarcasm in the world. So it was Anna, then Lisa... And then this girl. Okay, yeah. So, like, understandably, he's a bit nervous. It's been a while that it's been with, you know, someone he hasn't been in a consistent relationship with. It came across as the, like, having to remember how to, like, put on the show of, like, bringing her home, impressing her, putting on the moves, being suave, like. Yes, how to put on that mask, right, that we were talking about in a monster movie. The mask mask had to come back on. Our theme this week is guilt, uh, which is a word that comes from Old English, but we don't really know where it comes from, like, beyond that. It meant, you know, like a crime, sin, moral defect, failure of duty. I personally really like this idea of failure of duty because when we feel guilty, like, we tend to think, like, damn, I shouldn't have done this or, like, or maybe, like, I should have done that. And and there's this, like, idea of, like, prescriptive thinking where because of something because it's something that we failed at, right? Like we should have done this. We should have done that. And guilt is just as a side note, like not to be mixed up with shame, which is when we go from like, I shouldn't have done that to like, I did that because I'm deficient in some way. Shame moves away from the action and uh, directly into the negative self-talk. Some listeners might have noticed, and for transparency, we have already used guilt as a theme when we discussed 402, Are You There, God? It's Me, Dean Winchester. But we felt like it would be a good opportunity to sort of like check in with Dean and Sam and like see where they stand when it comes to guilt since that time, because like a lot has happened since then. So just like this episode looks back, like we decided to also look back. I love this. And I think it's important to revisit themes when topical because we are looking at the growth of these characters in this case sam and dean over so many seasons and episodes in such a time span 
it only makes sense to check in with them once in a while. I think especially when it comes to those recurring themes, you know, like guilt and family and whatnot we do. So I, I think we'll, we might be revisiting some of them eventually. Do you remember which one Are You There, God, It's Me, Dean Winchester is? No, I will need a refresher on that one. So this is the one with the, the rising of the witnesses where we get like ghosts basically coming back of all of the people that they have either killed or allowed to die. So, you know, we see Henriksen and Meg, but like girl Meg, not demon Meg. Some twins that Bobby couldn't save, you know? Yeah, still the creepiest one of the bunch. Yeah, I know. We literally are going to be reckoning with a ghost from his past again. These themes, they are. We do think about them. Someone is really smart here, and I'm not talking about myself. (laughs) If we start with Sam, I did go back and I listened to our episode on 402, and we had some, some stuff pretty much nailed down for Sam, like that he basically didn't feel guilty the same way, or at least like for the same things that Dean did. Like... At the time, like, he didn't feel guilty about losing the people that they couldn't save. And I think that looking at both episodes together, like, what I'm getting is that Sam is able to discern when something is his fault because of bad choices and when something happens because of something that he could not possibly have predicted with the information that he had at the time, right? So, and and we can sort of guess that in 402, but... In this episode, like, that really crystallizes, even through dialogue, right? Yeah, I I really feel like that moment, kind of like Sam's self-actualization in this episode that kind of comes up, is the healthiest we've seen him on an emotional level in, I want to say ever, but like at least in a long while. He's really displaying this growth here in the way that he analyzes Dean while playing his lawyer, but... In doing so, what really comes to fruition is that he reveals to us how he has grown and learned to understand his feelings. This is like a massive step forward for him. And we've discussed previously and heavily in early season five of how he felt a need to atone for literally everything and anything, even going as far as throwing himself in dangerous path in a self-sacrificial move when he felt it was the best option, but with no regard for himself. So we're now seeing a Sam who... I feel like if we were to put this Sam back in seasons three, four, five, would maybe handle situations differently because he has truly learned to see what is truly his responsibility versus happenstance. I I don't know if I agree with the fact that he would make different choices because it's the choices that he made that actually led him to feeling the way that he does, right? Because he says like, I think I just don't feel guilty anymore. I've spent a lot of time feeling pretty crappy, like my whole life. I feel like I did a lot of stuff I should have felt bad for, and then I paid a lot of dues and came out the other side. Sometimes I see Lucifer when I frickin' brush my teeth, but I don't know. I guess I just feel like my past is my past and I can move on with my life, you know, hopefully. And so to me, like, that is radical acceptance, In my field of study is basically a skill that helps people accept and understand that chronic pain isn't always associated to emotional suffering. And and here it feels like this is what Sam is kind of thinking, right? That like, yes, it is painful to live through what he's lived through, but there's no reason for him to ruminate on it and to keep telling himself that it was his fault. Like past is his past and he can try to carry on. 
I think what I meant to say more was if he were given similar scenarios where he maybe made a choice that was more, I'll die in the line of fire to save people because I'm a bad person and if I go, it's not a huge loss to the world. I think that part of him has, for the most part, been, I don't want to say dissolved, but like has been better understood to the point where he doesn't feel that way. Because really, this 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 comes across as a huge load off his shoulders. And you can see it in their little final Impala talk. Uh, he seems relieved to finally be able to unburden himself because he knows it's not everything is his fault. You know, sure, there are things he did do, but he understands now what's his fault versus what isn't. It's also the fact that he's reached this clarity that he's almost able to impart it on Dean. Which to me, I think is the like the biggest step forward. It's not just a matter of like he's realized it himself and he has like made this decision and he's figured himself out. He's able to try to impart this on Dean. Yeah, I agree. Although I find that it is much easier to tell people like, oh, it's not your fault. Don't worry. Than like it is to remind yourself of that. So let's let's kind of keep that in mind when we're having this discussion. I mean, there's true tenderness in the way that he's trying to to help Dean during the trial. And like he's trying to get Dean to understand that his actions or at least his actions alone couldn't have possibly led to the death and destruction that's, or at least all the death and destruction that's been happening all around him, right? Like, he reminds him that Joe's dad was a hunter and that she didn't get into hunting to impress Dean, like, probably more to impress her, uh, not to impress her dad, but like to follow in her dad's footsteps. And, you know, he's also reminding him that like, him and Joe, because this is also like, oh, Sam wouldn't, be here without me kind of thing that like both of them made their own choices and that Dean didn't make those choices for them. Like they did. It's very easy to like point out someone else's, you know, issue and go, you shouldn't feel guilty and harder for yourself, which is why I think seeing Sam achieve this first while doing it for Dean makes it so much more valid, but you're right. Like ultimately Sam has, I guess, figured himself out enough here, which is impressive. And genuinely, like, when he's defending Dean, it never came across as just, like, let me save Dean. It came across as, like, no, Osiris is wrong. Dean's fine. Like, I legitimately believe this. All right. So if we move on to Dean, I think that he is the poster child for our theme discussion. Always is and always will be. And to be fair, like, he already was back in season four when we had this conversation the first time. And I think that, like, the key to Dean's guilt is also discussed in this episode when he's talking to Joe's ghost. And I have so many feelings about this because at the time of this recording, I just finished listening to the Winchesters. And boy, do I have brain warms right now. So anyway, in this episode, Dean says, you were a kid, you and Sam. Hunters are never kids. I never was. I didn't even stop to think about it. And to me, like, there are two things that stand out here. Like, first is that, like, Dean's standards for himself are completely unrealistic. Like, we've been saying this for going on, like, seven seasons now. Uh, but Dean is very quick to feel guilty, even for things that aren't directly his fault. I mean, it's unrealistic for him to expect to always be able to make like the best possible choice and that he doesn't have, even when he doesn't have all the information. And like, it is also unrealistic for him to think that he's the only one responsible for the consequences of actions that like he didn't even take. 
yeah, I feel like we see this trait in Dean, like, especially early on in the show, again, much like Sam with his willingness to, like, throw himself in dangerous path to save people. And so often Dean's self-sacrificial nature can be tied to him feeling guilty, even when we have many times together realized that his guilt was unfairly placed on himself. It all seems to further stem back to like how we've seen him being raised by John. You know, if something went wrong, it was never an accident. It was never someone, it was always someone's fault. And usually it seems it was Dean's fault. And we see that clearly again in Dark Side of the Moon with the uh, Sam running away. It's not Sam's fault for running away. It's Dean's fault for letting Sam get away. It's Dean's fault that Sam wanted to run away. You know, Dean gets blamed for it by John, as far as we can tell, or I believe he even admits to it. So, yeah, of course the poor kid's been conditioned to feel guilty for anything and everything and make himself the reason for everyone's faults. I truly think that this episode is saying that the reason why his expectations of himself are unrealistic is because he never was a kid. Like when he was young, he became responsible for things that he should never have been responsible for. Like he was responsible for the health and well-being of Sam, but he was also responsible for managing all of John's emotions, his outbursts and like his bad habits. And and this is from age four. So yeah, like you say, no fucking wonder that he feels responsible for things outside of the scope of his reach, you know? The irony in which we can clearly blame so much of his issues on John, but he was conditioned to blame himself instead. The second thing that this line tells us is that Dean's standard for himself are way higher than the standards that he has for others. Like he doesn't hold Sam or Joe to the same unrealistic standards that he holds himself. Like Sam made the decision to leave Stanford when he was 22 and Joe was 21 when she decided to hunt. And like, of course, that's young, but they weren't children anymore. They weren't kids. Dean was a kid, though, when he was put in charge of Sam. He was four. And so I think that this really helps us, or at least like it really helps me to kind of understand Dean's tendency to reach for guilt so fast. You know what, you pointed it out just moments ago when talking about Sam, how it's so much easier to, like, tell someone else how to handle their guilt than deal with your own. And I think Dean, again, speaking of poster child, is, like, the icon for this. Of, like, he's so quick to find a way to explain everything away unless it's himself. You know, he doesn't know what it means to forgive himself. He holds on to everything because he was raised to never let go, never forgive and never forget. He can't forgive himself. He can only shift blame. And given, as you said, his standards, who could he possibly shift the blame to aside from John sometimes when he does refer to how rough things were. But even then, it's almost like done here in the trial as a way to almost like further solidify his own guilt. Again, the brain worms that I currently have from the Winchesters are taking up more and more space. But I do think, though, that there are some things for which it makes sense for Dean to feel guilty, like killing Amy after he told Sam he wouldn't and then not telling Sam about it. Like, that is a direct consequence of his actions. And so for him to feel guilty about that, like, I think that that makes complete sense. Like that, yes, that is a normal and healthy way to feel guilt. The shining moment of this episode is 
while Sam is kind of able to reveal this new reverence for himself in understanding his place with guilt and Dean's ability to try to reckon with it, but ultimately get faced with a scenario, i.e. Amy, where he can clearly go, no, I, I did that. That was me. I am guilty of this. It gives the episode a little more weight in the sense of it's not just another like, let's find our way out of this. It ultimately comes down to Sam having to save the day because Dean knows what he did was wrong. Yeah, exactly. And and I can't argue it because I spent an entire episode last week arguing that he was in the wrong for doing this. So I I actually agree with that. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm with Osiris on this one, sadly. Gather round, young ones. It's time you learned and understood what exactly happens to you when your time on this plane comes to an end. <clears throat> First, your body is prepared. We remove your most important parts and place them away safely so your body can be an empty vessel for your soul to reach the afterlife. People will often leave gifts like food or gold near your body so we can have them in eternity. Some may even leave useful knowledge to make your path easier. Your soul will ride your coffin through the fields of the afterlife, meeting the gates and the deities that guard them. If you know their name, they will let you pass. So be sure to memorize them, or have someone write them down and leave them in your coffin. Your journey will lead you to the final judgment, where you will meet the 42 assessors of Mott. You will address each by name and the sins you haven't committed to each of them. Then Anubis will place your heart on the scale and weigh it against the feather of Mott. Thoth will document everything and report his findings to Osiris. If your heart is lighter, you will be guided to Seketaru, the field of reeds, where you can stay as long as you'd like until you're ready for rebirth. But if your heart is heavier than the feather, Amit will gobble it up and you will be left in the lake of fire, forever running from Amhe, or else he will gobble you up. So I wasn't really sure what to say uh, in this segment because this episode is like kind of ridiculous in my opinion. And and then I sort of figured that maybe we need to address that early on because season seven is camp. Now I know that that is a term that we've probably all heard, but I want to make sure that we all have like a common definition that we can work from in future conversations when we talk about the aesthetics and other creative choices in season seven. So to start, let's head to Wikipedia and say that camp is an aesthetic style and sensibility that regards something as appealing because of its bad taste and ironic value. And I, I really, really, really want to start off by highlighting like that camp as an aesthetic comes from and is still very closely associated with gay culture. The very first definition of camp, actually, in 1909 uh, in the Oxford Dictionary, was 
ostentatious, exaggerated, affected, theatrical, effeminate, or homosexual behavior. So again, something to keep in mind about the choice to make season seven camp, and which arguably season six as well. Season six like had its its camp moments. So then later in 1964, Susan Sontag actually wrote Notes on Camp, which still to this day basically is the essay that defines this term. Because some people might remember the 2019 Met Gala, where the theme was like a play on the title of Sontag's essay. And the one thing that I find really interesting about this is that she argues in her paper that Baroque is camp about religion, which again has such interesting ties to Supernatural. Like if you haven't listened to our special uh, episode on the art in the green room with Jen, I would really invite you to go have a listen because we talk about a few of the Baroque paintings in that room. And so... Yeah, again, to have a season where Kripke is no longer writing be so camp when his seasons were anything but is giving me like so, again, other brain worms, other kinds of brain worms. But again, I will come back to that too later in this season. But now, now we know and we have a common definition for camp. There's a lot of stuff that when we say camp, I think Jasper mentioned that um, Live Free or Twy Hard is pretty camp, which I absolutely agree with. It is very camp. Um, So that's a good example. This episode, very camp as well. Like someone who very briefly studied Egyptian history, I revere Osiris as like this like mythical character uh, of like these like epic proportions. Like I put him up there with like Zeus and like Odin of just like, these like powerful like deities so to have him like joking around palling around almost like felt like he was slumming it with the humans like to me was so camp is the perfect description of it and thank you for helping me like put that together because I don't think I had the word in mind for it but spot on yeah so we are going to have like a bigger discussion about camp throughout this this season because we have to talk about it Some people are like, if you don't like camp, then you don't like season seven, which I don't know because I love camp and yet I don't like season seven. So I, maybe this will change my mind. Maybe really diving into this and having those conversations is going to change my mind, but I don't know. This week, we have a message from Ruby. Before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three minute voicemail. To respond to anything we discussed today, you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. We also want to remind you that Mary and I will be answering the question, have you ever been to court, for our Roadhouse supporters on our Impala Talk. Stay to the very end of the episode to hear a short clip. Hey, this is Ruby again. Uh, This one isn't exactly inspired by a exact episode, more something that I've been thinking about off and on as I've listened to your show, um, especially as you guys um, talk about Dean and queer readings of Dean um, and the ways that his story is very much a queer story. It hits a lot of queer story beats. And one of the things I've been thinking about recently is um, queer people and uh, the monstrous. Um, The whole idea that, like, uh, as a queer person, 
I have grown up being semi in love with stories about monsters. Um, stories like Frankenstein or Dracula or um, just basically any story about people <laughs> and monsters who are um, they don't fit in with the rest of society. They are something that society sees as um, something to throw aside, something to um, banish and things like that. And I feel like a lot of queer people, uh, at least myself and my friends uh, and other queer people I know, a lot of queer people are like this. They, they, we can't find a lot of representation of our experiences on mainstream media. And so we end up kind of falling for the queer coded villains and the monsters and the angels and the demons, the things that don't quite belong. Um, and I was thinking about that and how that relates to Dean one, because Dean, I feel like, ends up becoming monstrous or villainous uh, way more in the story um, than perhaps other characters, although arguably Sammy also has some issues with that as well, uh, especially during one specific season. Um, but I was also thinking of how it kind of relates in the reverse um, because it's not just oh Dean relates to the monstrous more um, although I have found in later seasons that he does tend to give more leeway give more chances to people who might be considered monstrous by others. Um, but more that uh, the monstrous tend to be really uh, attracted to Dean, not just in like a sexual or romantic way, but just like so many demons, angels, vampires, other monsters <laughs> tend to look at Dean and go, mm, yes, that one, that one is friend-shaped. If I can't be his friend, I'm going to bother him uh, because at least he'll pay attention to me. And I just, I don't know if I have an exact conclusion to that or anything. I just found it very interesting, especially because it's, it's not just, oh, queers and monsters get along. It's also very interesting in the fact that so many of Supernatural's villains are so queer-coded. To have them uh, be that queer-coded and also uh, just kind of in love with Dean is something that's very 
interesting and intriguing to me, even if I can't quite work out in my head uh, what that means, um, or even if it does have a meaning beyond just, oh, that's interesting. So, yeah, that's what I've been thinking about. Bye. Ruby, thank you for bringing always one of my favorite subjects on this show. And that is just the relationship we have uh, to monsters and stuff like that. Like, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Frankenstein, I think, very clearly is a story of an outcast trying to fit in and being othered. So it's understandable. I believe we've even spoken about the origins of Lilith in the like or in, like the connection to the origin of vampires and how they were very much seen as a sexual being or a deviant I'm using air quotes here so very happy to have this reemerge and it fills me with such joy to know there'll be other creatures and monsters that look at Dean and go mm, yes that one is friend shaped I love that thank you so much but yeah I don't think you need a conclusion to this I think it is just really good to sometimes just put the thoughts out there. I feel like that's half of my discoveries in this show on this show are just saying things out loud and Mary going, Oh, silly boy. And making a concise point out of it. I think just putting all that out there, it just, it speaks to the innate queerness in Dean that he is othered in his, even to himself that other things that are considered othered, see him as someone to connect with. I mean, listen, Ruby, uh, thank you again for this for this uh, lovely little puzzle that you're presenting us with, because that's kind of what it feels like. And I mean, I don't have answers. I At least I don't have easy answers, but I do have maybe other pieces of the puzzle that can maybe help you kind of consolidate some of your thoughts. So as I was listening to you, there were a couple of things that came up. And first off, like the etymology of the word monster is fascinating because it actually comes from Latin demonstrate which means like to reveal, to make evident. And in this case, like monsters in literature are, are there for that, right? They're there to reveal things about humanity, reveal things about the author or the characters. And revealing things like that are, are meant to be uncomfortable. And so that's why monsters are presented the way that they are. So that's, I think, like one thing to kind of keep in mind here when we're talking about uh, monsters as an allegory for queerness. The other thing that I want to talk about is that having made some friends in the communications department at my school, I was introduced to the, 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 this, this field of classification. And it's, it's, it's as simple as you would think from the name. So it's basically like, what fits where, right? And so here, when we're talking about queerness, it comes like as a, as a challenge to what's called heteronormativity. So like this idea that heterosexuality is, is the norm, is the normal and is the, the, um, the standard, right? But then when you think about it, then queerness is also defined by heteronormativity, right? Because then who decides what is queer and what is not and what challenges the status quo? Yeah, thinking about all that and monsters and Dean, like I think that Dean's affinity with monsters and with people who fall outside 
of, of that norm, of the norm, is actually what, and yet having to live in society within the norm is like one of the most classic codes, I guess, uh, that were used in order to talk about bisexual characters, right? So that idea of living between two worlds, between the monster world and and the the normal world, the human world. And so Dean is kind of in, in between, not that being bisexual means that you're in between, right? Like, let's be very clear. But I think that that's a feeling that a lot of us can relate to when it comes to not quite being fully in one world and fully in another and that becoming sometimes problematic for us because we get I don't want to say hate but definitely um sometimes from from every side and so I think that that's basically one of the really strong by codings of Dean uh in this in this show so yeah I don't know if this was helpful in any way shape or form but it definitely gave me even more brain worms like there are only worms in my brain right now so thank you for that and I think with this idea of classification, like who decides who and what is a monster, right? Because monsters are defined by humans, but then humans are also therefore defined and revealed through the monsters. And so like, how, how does that even work, right? So anyway, the worms all over the place. Do you have any reflection and call to action this week? I get intrusive thoughts. You, we've all sort of seen that cliche or the meme of like lying in bed and your brain's like, remember that dumb thing you did when you were like seven? And like, it's the things like that that come up. And then I guess like that's the reflection. But the call to action is just like, remember Sam? Some of those aren't your fault. In fact, most of them probably aren't your fault. Like the three or four that like hit me the hardest, the most, that really like caused me anxiety still to this day. Like, I was thinking through them and like, those weren't my fault. They were miscommunications. They were accidents. But they were never like me doing an action that caused something. It was just happenstance or it was just. So again, it's to be a little more like Sam, which seems like an absolutely crazy thing to try to be more like. But in this episode, he has really proved that he has understood himself and his relationship with his actions. And I want to do more of that. And your reflection and call to action this week? I think that this episode like kind of helped me work something out for myself. Like, because like Dean, I am very quick to guilt, uh, to shame too, but I think I'll keep that for another episode. And so when the discussion about standards and expectations came up, like it really unlocked something for me. And so my call to action is to be more attentive uh, about like when I feel guilty and to think about like what's mine and what isn't. And so also to be more like Sam and to be a bit more discerning about the role that I actually played in a particular situation, you know, that and, and not necessarily just what I should have or shouldn't have done in hindsight, because that that basically helps no one. So we're just going to both be a little more Sam, I guess so. But no sideburns. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano and hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. 
Thank you to everyone supporting us on Coffee or Patreon, and an extra thank you to our Bunker supporters, L, Jeremiah Thomas, and Simone. This week, we'd like to thank Ruby for its message. You can go to carryingwayward.com for the links to our merch store and all of our socials. And if you'd like to support us, you can become a patron or a coffee subscriber. You can also leave us a rating on Spotify and a review on Apple Podcast. Carry on our wayward friends. <laughs> I have never been to court. Um, the closest I've ever come to go to court was when I, as a I think like 18 or 19 year old, I had gone to a store and rented out like a um, a ladder and then just never brought the ladder back. And so they sent in like somebody to get the ladder back and I had to pay like this huge freaking fine. <laughs>